Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. On the show this week, Germany to phase out nuclear power. Obviously, for the companies, it's a huge blow because facilities that were mandated since last autumn to run up to 2036 now have to be switched off earlier. The IAEA reports on the nuclear crisis at Fukushima. The central finding is that the operators of the Fukushima reactors really were placed in an impossible position. They were faced with a natural disaster that the design of the plant simply wasn't able to cope with. And UK utility Centrica leaves a gas field idle. The reason why they haven't reopened it is that the trigger price for wholesale gas that would allow it to become commercially viable has been raised by the increase in the tax burden. And that trigger price simply wasn't reached on the wholesale market this morning. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Let's start this week's show in Germany and the news this week that the country plans to close its 17 nuclear power plants, which generate one quarter of the country's electricity by 2022, following the partial nuclear meltdown at Japan's Fukushima Daiichi plant in March. Now joining me on the line is the FT's Berlin correspondent, Gerrit Wiesmann, and in the studio is Vincent Boland, the FT's Lex writer. If I can come to you first, Garrett, how much of a surprise was Monday's decision by Angela Merkel, the Chancellor, to phase out these plants? It was totally not a surprise. I mean, so many things had been leaked and trailed and trawled in the last six weeks that we really knew where the government was going. And also, I mean, it's a reversion to the old phase-out date that was set a decade ago by the then government of Social Democrats and Greens. So if you like, we're back to square one. From your perspective, is is this more a decision driven by domestic politics or is it really to do with Japan? It's a decision based on domestic politics, but domestic politics was, of course, influenced by Japan. I mean, the public worry about nuclear power went up considerably after what happened in Japan. Then again, I don't think this is an irrational decision. It's just the government saying, well, we looked at plan A, but there was also always a plan B, if you like, a greener or less nuclear path, and we will now opt to take that one. And what have the companies been saying? Because under the original plan, when she was going to extend the life of these plants, she'd also imposed a fuel rod tax on the companies, but that still stays, doesn't it? It does indeed, which is a bit nasty of the government, but it needs money for its budget consolidation, so that's a source of tax revenue it didn't want to touch. The companies are splitting blood. I mean, RWE was the most vocal anyway in the past six weeks. E.ON played this rather gentlemanly, quiet game, but E.ON went ballistic yesterday when it announced that it would indeed sue against this nuclear tax, something that RWE hasn't yet done, and also in claiming billions in damages. I mean, it wants to claim billions in damages from the government, which it hopes to do through a negotiated settlement, but it's already clearly implied that it would sue the government in court for damages if the government doesn't cough up something voluntarily. How badly affected are other companies in reality? Have they lost a big chunk of their power source? Eon reckons this 
switch back to the phase-out date of 2022 will cost it in excess of $10 billion in earnings, and it wants to claw that back. I mean, obviously, for the companies, it's a huge blow because facilities that were mandated uh, since last autumn to run up to 2036 now have to be switched off earlier. I think it's also very important, though, in terms of business confidence. Are these companies really going to want to invest in the home market again in other energy areas, having had the rug pulled from under them in the nuclear arena. And that's a big question that both government and the utilities still have to answer. Vincent, if I can bring you here, you're looking at the strategies of these utilities, so EN and RW. What what do you think it means for that? I think it's a big strategic dilemma, actually, for these companies. And also, I think it will plant question marks in the minds of investors in these companies. RWE and EON are two of Europe's biggest utilities, and nuclear was a substantial part of their present and also, I think, of their future. These are extremely technologically advanced companies. Now that the nuclear option has been shut down for them in Germany, I think that that's going to necessarily cause a significant review of the strategy that these companies are pursuing. That is one reason I suspect why RWE is now floundering around and looking for damages from the government and threatening to sue, etc. Because I think it, it has come as quite a blow to them, I suspect. Gary, what's your perspective from Berlin on that? I think both companies will seek to diversify their risks in terms of the markets. I think they will look elsewhere. E.ON has already stated this as a strategic goal even before all of this nuclear hoo-ha started in Germany. But it applies really all the more also to RWE, which is much more exposed, has much higher share of its revenue in Germany. So both companies will, I mean, they're not going to abandon Germany, but if they have a euro in hand, I think they'll be more prone to invest it outside of Germany than in the country, which is, of course, then also bad for the government because it needs deep-pocketed investors to build these renewable energy plants. Thank you very much, Garrett. Let's move on to our second topic of today, a report out this morning by the IAEA, the UN's nuclear watchdog, on the nuclear crisis in Japan. Now, in the report's conclusions, it placed the blame for the accident more on the design of the Fukushima Daiichi plant than on the actions of the operators of the plant after the accident. Joining me is David Blair, our energy correspondent. What were the broad conclusions of the report and what do you make of them? The central finding is that the operators of the Fukushima reactors really were placed in an impossible position. They were faced with a natural disaster that the design of the plant simply wasn't able to cope with. The plant was designed to withstand tsunami waves of up to six metres. But in fact, Japan has a history of tsunamis of up to 20 metres, and the one that struck on March the 11th was a shade under 15 metres. So it clearly wasn't able to cope with the disaster that overwhelmed it, and there wasn't really much that anyone could have done at that point. It doesn't say very much for planning by the Japanese. And I just wondered, more broadly, what do you think people in the UK were planning? We've got a big programme of new build. What conclusions will people draw from the report? The safety regulations here specify that you have to plan for the worst event that's been recorded over a period of centuries. Now, clearly that criterion wasn't applied in Japan. So I think over here the regulators would say that they are much tougher and that they do bear in mind worst-case scenarios in a way that their counterparts in Japan just clearly didn't. The question for the Japanese is whether this will fatally undermine the credibility of its regulatory authorities and whether the trust of the Japanese public can ever be restored, given that the mistake that was made here was clearly a very obvious mistake and one that would have been visible to everybody. 
And Vincent, if I can bring you in here, we spoke earlier about RWE and E.ON. Both of those companies are in consortia planning to build new reactors in the UK. Given their problems now in their home market, do you think that they're likely to keep to keep funding new nuclear in the UK? I do, actually. I think that in the UK in particular, I think nuclear is probably a growth area. If the industry manages to get beyond the current Fukushima-related concerns that there are out there. I think that potentially the UK is second only to France, really, I think, in, in, in nuclear terms in Europe. So I would think that both companies, particularly E.ON, would want to be here. And David, you also spoke to Ian Marchant, the chief executive of Scottish and Southern, earlier this week, who's, who's the second biggest provider of electricity in the UK. Is he anti-nuclear or what was he talking about? No, in principle, he's in favour of new nuclear, but he just thinks that enough has already been done to give the companies the incentives they need to press ahead with their plans to build our new reactors. In particular, he thinks that the carbon price floor, which will give a windfall to operators of existing power stations, plus the uh, proposed capacity payment, which would provide additional payments to anyone operating a a, a power station uh, combined, should give them enough to, to press ahead with their plans. He doesn't think that any further steps, for example, a contract for difference or a new tariff system would be needed. Thank you. And to our final topic of today, the UK utility company Centrica. David, we learned this morning that the company has decided not to restart production at one of Britain's biggest gas fields because of the higher taxes imposed on oil and gas production in the March budget. Explain to us, please, what's been happening, and is this just a bit of a publicity stunt on behalf of Centrica? Well, Centrica warned a month ago that when this particular field shut down for its period of routine maintenance, they may not reopen it because of the effect on its commercial viability of the tax changes in the last budget. And a lot of people were sceptical when they said this a month ago. A lot of people thought that they probably were bluffing. But as of this morning, they've made good on their threat. They have not reopened Morecambe Bay South, even though its maintenance period is over and it's there ready and waiting to be set into motion. And the reason why they haven't reopened it is that the trigger price for wholesale gas that would allow it to become commercially viable has been raised by the increase in the tax burden. And that trigger price simply wasn't reached on the wholesale market this morning. So that was that. And Britain's biggest gas field is now lying idle in the Irish Sea. And if we're a sort of consumer or a customer of British gas, how worried should we be about our lights going out on the back of this? Centrica will buy all the gas that they require on the wholesale market. They also have access to imports uh, from Qatar via a deal that they signed earlier this year. So there's no danger of that. But what it does represent is a potential loss of production in the UK if it's sustained. Now, we must add a note of caution. Uh, Centrica have made very clear that they will judge day by day whether it becomes viable to turn on Morecambe South. It will depend on wholesale gas prices. They can go up, so their position may be reversed. But if we assume for a moment that it stays offline, then every day it stays offline is a loss of production to the UK. And by extension, it's a loss of tax revenues to the government. Now, Vincent, if I can bring you in here, you've written quite a bit about the tax hike, which surprised the industry back in March, and they've all been warning about you know, future investment being impacted by this. What, what's your sense of, of, of where this is at, and is it a really big impact on balance sheets? I think that politically, I have to say, neither the government nor the companies can really afford to have any blackouts as a result of the tax or the company's response to it. The companies are pressing very hard for gas and oil to be treated separately in this tax change, I think in the tax regime more generally. And there's ongoing on-again, on off-again talks on that may or may not result in, in any kind of resolution. But I think that at the moment, I don't see how the companies can threaten or object to the way that the tax has been imposed any more than they have done already. And I think Centrica's decision to keep Morecambe South offline is probably as extreme as the response is going to get. 
Do you think, given though the high oil price, that George Osborne sort of saw an easy target when he looked at the oil and gas companies and thought, well, you're making lots of profit. Yes, I'll be hitting you. Yes, it's a surprise. But in the end, it's not going to make that big a difference. I mean, whose side should we be on? Those who are most exposed to this tax, I think, are companies that smaller companies that pick up mature assets in the North Sea. There's a lot of those companies about. They, they put a lot of investment into the North Sea. They keep a lot of jobs going and they bring back a lot of oil. But I think the tax was used as a political tool just to slap the big oil companies in the face. And I don't think actually that they're going to be the ones that are really suffering from it. It's going to be the smaller companies. And that could have an impact on North Sea investment. Thank you very much. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank Garrett in Berlin and David and Vincent in the studio in London. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Philotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.